Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Fonton Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. Health insurance coverage is in the headlines once again, as many Americans are soon expected to lose their Medicaid eligibility due to the end of the subsidies enacted during the pandemic. In contrast, North Carolina became the most recent state to expand Medicaid eligibility under Obamacare, something that it resisted doing for many years. But of course, having insurance doesn't help much if people can't get access to healthcare due to workforce shortages and other barriers. We could not have a better guest today to help us understand the complicated dynamics at work in this area than Dr. Sandra Hernandez, president and CEO of the California Healthcare Foundation. In addition to being a physician, Dr. Hernandez has decades of experience in public health and public policy and has been tapped by two Californian governors to share her expertise on access and affordability issues. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sandra. Thank you, Ron. Nice to be with you. I would just love for you to start by helping us understand the role that California Healthcare Foundation plays. Sure. California Healthcare Foundation is a statewide, private, independent healthcare focus foundation. We live in a state with a number of healthcare foundations, CHCF, California Healthcare Foundations, focuses itself principally on delivery system improvements uh, with a, a very keen eye and focus on uh, low-income folks and folks who historically have not had great access or do not today have great access to uh, the healthcare that's available to folks with commercial coverage or otherwise. Well, many of our audience members are from education or workforce backgrounds. I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on what you mean by delivery systems improvement. The way that California approaches the delivery of health care, uh, particularly for people with low incomes, is through the state's Medi-Cal program, Medicaid as we know it in other states. The Medi-Cal program serves 13 million people in California. And so when I describe the healthcare delivery system, I'm principally talking about public hospitals, federally qualified health centers, uh, delivery systems that are organized all across various regions in the state who provide care both to Medi-Cal patients, but also to Medicare patients and to commercially insured folks. So we spend a great deal of time sort of focused really in three areas, Fun would be a way to describe it. One is just to provide actionable data-driven evidence that allows the state to look at where there are gaps, either in coverage, in access once you do have coverage, or in patient-centered care, care that actually provides care uh, and services and really looks at both patients comprehensively, but also looks at population-based outcomes as well. So when we describe the delivery system, really talking about that full continuum of services that uh, individuals would get by virtue of being enrolled in Medi-Cal or in Covered California or other programs that by and large uh, provide access to folks to comprehensive sets of benefits. I would imagine that as you're thinking about these comprehensive services, the issue of workforce comes up frequently. I would love you to share what your foundation is focused on right now, specific to workforce. 
Yes, you're quite right. Um, I should say that we shouldn't skip over how important California has been as a state in the first goal, which is to get everybody covered with insurance. Uh, and as you alluded to in your opening remarks, Vaughn, we've been under a public health emergency because of COVID-19, uh, where we've allowed for so-called presumptive eligibility. California Healthcare Foundation has worked for many, many years, well over a decade, at both improving that enrollment system for folks into Medi-Cal, but also importantly to expand coverage of Medi-Cal such that we don't leave any population outside of coverage. Once you get beyond coverage, you're quite right, Vaughn, then you get into, okay, well, what does an insurance card mean and what does it mean to be a member of a health plan? Uh, and there you do get into situations where everything from what I would describe as the adequacy of the network in health plans to actually provide the array of services for their members is an issue. And increasingly, for a number of reasons, uh, the workforce itself is often an enormous challenge. We saw this uh, quite clearly be exacerbated during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, we had um, several dynamics at play in the workforce. One is the workforce itself was aging. Another is that the distribution of our workforce across California is quite uneven uh, with large gaps and discrepancies with regard to coverage of say primary care physicians or psychiatrists or behavioral health specialists. Um, so we have both a mismatch, a maldistribution a declining workforce by virtue of its aging. And then uh, we, we really have very, what I would consider old models for how we go about delivering care. And that really gets us into work that CHCF is doing today in workforce post-pandemic. We saw quite clearly that the pandemic exacerbated a tremendous amount of burnout in the existing workforce. But we also saw significant parts of community step forward during the pandemic to really help us address some of the emergent opportunities that came out of the pandemic by virtue of having vaccines to be able to be distributed. And so we have uh, both tried to describe what the workforce challenges are. We did, along with some of our sister foundations, a big statewide commission that looked at what the needs going forward were for the workforce in California with a particular focus on primary care, behavioral health, and the workforce that serves our aging population. And that uh, analysis and set of recommendations really does describe a map by which public sectors, philanthropic sectors, nonprofit organizations could lean into the goals that were set forth, in particular in those areas. And CHCF has continued to work against the priorities that came out of those recommendations from that commission. We have very much been interested in three separate areas, I would say largely in workforce. The first has to do with promotores and community health workers. We'd love to talk to you more about that, Vaughn. I think that's an area that uh, is exciting is growing, is scaling, is, is being reimbursed. And there are really important reasons for expanding that part of the workforce. Um, we've been interested in doulas, for example, as a way to address black maternity outcomes, which have been disproportionately 
negative for over 200 years, if not more. And doulas are a very uh, interesting workforce that we've also been trying to build. Uh, we've been very interested in telehealth and telemedicine, of course, as a way to leverage the existing workforce that we have. And we've done some interesting work around prescribers and expanding prescribers in the psychiatric space with a psychiatric nurse practitioner program that we did with uh, the partnership of some of our CSU partners. So I would say that in general, we're very focused on looking at the primary care model and the primary care team and its composition. Uh, we've done a lot of work with nurse and nurse practitioners scope of practice. We've done work in community paramedicine, again, trying to use every drop of workforce that we have in California to its fullest capabilities with a by and large a focus on trying to expand the base of those different types of professions within the workforce arena. Sandra, I'm curious, as you talk about rethinking the primary care team and its composition, where is the point of leverage or where is the point of change? Yeah, you know, when we think about primary care, um, you know, I'm a primary care internist, as you, as you noted, and the old model really was a primary care physician carrying a battery of, you know, X hundreds of patients. And I think what we envision as a new model is really looking at how we do primary prevention. How do we do education? How do we do early screening? And how do we build that capacity into teams such that we're using a limited and costly part of the pyramid of workforce, primary care docs? We're still trying to improve that pipeline, obviously. But, but that's a long process to get us to expand that workforce. And so the idea here is to really have the primary care clinician deal with more complex issues and be able to use a workforce, including promotores, community health workers, CNAs, a variety of different types of nurses as a team to be able to manage things that are more standard or that are lend themselves more to protocols and where you can do certifications and doing training, which also gives us the opportunity potentially to expand those pipelines and do a little bit more around workforce development and economic development. Because of course, one of the reasons we have 13 million people on Medi-Cal is we have so many very low income folks in the state. So uh, when we think about the primary care team, it's with that eye to be able to use limited resources in the most complex arenas and really try to expand the knowledge base and the reach and the lived experience and the cultural competency that you get from people who are coming from the community and are earlier in their healthcare careers. And Sandra, when you are explaining this uh, future of care model, it seems so obvious, but yet it isn't here today. And I'm wondering, what are the barriers that keeps us in the old model? Yeah, that's a good question, Vaughn. I, I would say it's a, it's a couple of things. Um, as you know, there's a lot of inertia in healthcare. And, you know, we were at this scope of practice with nurse practitioners as a, a very good example. Uh, for many years, uh, we as a state were, were clearly not at a cutting edge in that arena. And our, you know, our colleagues at the CMA and in other organizations have been reluctant to allow others into what they view as sort of their space. You know, there's old history in that. Uh, a lot of that is, in my view, uh, unnecessary fear of somehow being 
pushed out. Uh, as I said, Yvonne, the state needs every drop of primary care capability we can get. And it's also a question of how people use their time and how they see themselves using their time. And there's concern about, you know, I want some of the run-of-mill stuff as well as some of the complex stuff as a way to balance my workload. But it doesn't really take into account the system needs. And I think if you look at the system broadly, we would argue that um, nurses practicing at the top of their license does not impede the need or the necessity or the capabilities of well-trained primary care clinicians in whatever field they might be in, family practice, OB, psychiatry, et cetera. So you know Bashar Shukair, who uh, with Kaiser Permanente actually provided us with initial funding. And one of his comments was that uh, the pandemic showed how the hospital system and the public health system were running parallel rather than complementary to each other. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about that comment. I think he's quite right. My public health work and my clinical work were both in San Francisco. San Francisco is quite unique in that um, the academic medical center, the public hospital and the health department um, work very much in alignment. Uh, and the health commission really oversees both the public health functions but also the major delivery systems in the city, Laguna Honda Hospital and San Francisco General Hospital. And in that situation, you can absolutely see the benefits of a public health system being completely synchronized data, infrastructure, resources uh, to be able to address a pandemic like we've just experienced with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, a lot of the challenges in this parallel structure, um, sure, they both come from workforce shortages. And one I didn't mention is clearly in public health, where we also have a significant workforce shortage. But also we have very siloed data systems and information systems. And so one of the things that I think really laid bare the weaknesses of the fragmentation between public health and healthcare delivery during the pandemic was just the fact that all of these systems work off different data collection mechanisms. Some of them are real time, some of them are not. Some is collected by counties and then sent to the state. Um, but in general, this lack of data integration, which the state now does have a plan for, that creates this fragmentation, duplication, people fall through the cracks, we repeat uh, tests, and exams one system to the other. But more importantly, we're not able to deploy resources based on real-time data when you're faced with a pandemic or an epidemic. And I think um, one of the things that the delivery system has come to appreciate coming out of COVID-19 was it was not as ready to respond in large part because those relationships with public health and with counties in many cases were non-existent, were nascent, were fragile. Uh, and in a crisis is, is really not the time you wanna to try to be building data systems or trust across those systems, right? And I think trust is, is a big part of this. And do you worry about, I call it recidivism, but will we go back to our old patterns? It's easy to fall back into old patterns, Vaughn, but I'm, I'm an optimist. I think that um, what we have seen with the data exchange effort that the state has put forward is really a recognition that 
all of us, all the delivery systems sit on tremendous amount of data that is really not very useful if we're not able to share it with the rest of our systems. People do not interface in just one place. So we need to be able to be much more facile with our data, be able to share it in centralized ways such that uh, we're delivering much more timely care, but also much more timely data, again, to try to allocate limited resources, particularly when we're in emergency situations. So I'm an optimist. I think there's been a lot of bridges that have been built post-pandemic. I think people have come to deeply appreciate the role of the public health delivery system, if you will, for population health. A lot of the health systems relied on federally qualified health centers and on health departments to be able to reach into communities that they were not able to reach in when we were in the acute phases of COVID-19. And I think that has brought about a realization of we have different assets and we need to be able to use them in a much more synchronized and efficient way. Well, Futura Health is contributing towards the capacity in the public health uh, system. We're working on a federal grant with uh, Berkeley, with Cal State Long Beach, Cal State East Bay, a number of community colleges to to build out public health informatics certificates that lead into degree pathways. So I thought I'd mention that. Yeah, you know, just say, Von, you know, I, I, I worked in numerous roles in public health. And I would just put a plug to say that these are very important roles that uh, we need fresh talent into. And so I'm super excited that Futuro Health is doing that. The other thing that came out of this is that our public health schools are now working together in an affiliated way to begin to look at what kinds of offerings we have in different schools of public health across the state, and really to find a way in which we can share information, curriculum, what people learned during the pandemic. And so that's really the first time that all the public schools has come under one rubric. And I think that's another a wonderful outshoot of, um, of the pandemic and thinking about how we utilize our public health systems and think about training into them in a much more strategic way. It's good that there's some silver linings from the pandemic. Yes. So, Sandra, I was wondering if you could tell our audience a bit more about how California is taking steps to expand eligibility to Medi-Cal for low-income Californians, regardless of their immigration status. Uh, Can you connect the dots for us, how this feeds into your work in health equity? Absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, you can't really do population health. You can't really think about health equity as a county, as a city, as a region, if you don't have everybody in the system. That, that is simply quite clear. It's true whether you're talking about tuberculosis management, it's true if you're talking about HIV, it's true if you're talking about COVID-19. Uh, you really do need to have everybody into a system, whatever that might be, Medi-Cal, Covered California, commercial, et cetera. And so um, there has been a long-standing effort to expand everybody in the state of California the ability to enroll in Medi-Cal, if even only with state Medi-Cal dollars and not utilizing federal dollars because of prohibitions that exist with regard to immigration status. We have many immigrants in California, and uh, over the years we have been slowly expanding their access to Medi-Cal 
we started with a younger population, went with an older population. And in this last budget, beginning in January 2024, everybody, regardless of age, who is uh, might be undocumented, would be eligible to enroll in Medi-Cal. Caveat, eligibility does not necessarily translate into enrollment. And so there will always be an effort, I think, to make sure that everybody who is eligible gets enrolled in uh, a program that they might be eligible for. And in the case of Covered California, that they draw down the appropriate subsidies that they're also eligible for. So um, California has been on this path to cover everybody, to get to universal coverage. And uh, January 2024 is really the last piece of that many depending on how you start counting, uh, many years journey. So what we're facing, of course, at the moment is some headwinds because as uh, I think you mentioned earlier, the public health emergency has ended. Presumptive eligibility therefore has ended and therefore people will have to go through the somewhat onerous process of getting recertified for eligibility. And there's an enormous effort going on in the state of California today that CHCF is very much involved with. That's a campaign. It's meant to really reach a population that historically has stayed out of healthcare, except for when they have emergency needs because of concerns of immigration, of reporting, of eligibility, of co-pays, of bills that they might get after they show up for care. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of educating and outreach and frankly, trust building to make sure that this expansion actually reaches the population it's intended to reach and that we make up whatever uh, lag we might have in the re-eligibility process now that presumptive eligibility under uh, the emergency has ended. Speaking about trust building, let's let's move to the topic of community health workers. Yes. Yes, you've been advocating for the use of community health workers as a great way to increase access and provide culturally competent care. Please tell us why these roles are so important and how their roles are changing in this environment. Well, you know, I think um, we have come to appreciate, as we are all trying to understand uh, social determinants of health, historical disparities in health outcomes, just how important cultural competency, lived experience uh, really is for people to be able to come into healthcare systems and really understand how they work. I, I would add, we're, we're now also faced with sort of this misinformation that is um, prevalent in communities and where people get information. You know, we saw this a little bit in in the vaccines around COVID-19, one of the important qualities of promotoras and health workers, community health workers, is that they are from the community. They are known to the community and really are the closest people to really being able to build a trusted relationship to share information that is scientifically based, that has a public health uh, evidence base behind it and at the same time be able to encourage people to get enrolled in the programs that they're eligible for, and also to be able to get them into earlier care. Um, I think as we try to shift the cost challenges that we have in healthcare, one of the things we do need to do is better primary care, is better early education, 
is better prevention and screening. And this is a workforce that is very well trained to be able to do that. And in the past was really funded on a grant from this person or a grant from that organization. And today with the legislation that's been passed in California is now actually a billable service uh, and really is taking a, what I view as a very important asset of community strength and bringing it into a formal work economy. And uh, whether you're a health plan or a federally qualified health center, or you're a community-based organization that wants to provide community supports under Medi-Cal, uh, we now have a really uh, very well-primed workforce that has the trust of community um, and I think can help tip us towards more prevention, uh, more screening, more health ed education uh, in a way that in the past was more haphazard, wasn't sustainable from a financing point of view. And so we're very excited about the goal that the state has to triple that workforce and how we do that in a way that maintains trust, maintains the cultural competency that's so important to our very diverse communities in the state. It's a workforce that is uh, as relevant in rural areas as it is in urban areas, also super important to the state. So we think it solves a number of issues and we've spent a lot of time trying to understand what the best practices are uh, so that as we standardize it as a reimbursable service, we don't lose the cultural competency and the trust and the kind of feats on the ground that has made it such an efficient and uh, important part of our more informal workforce historically. And with this workforce, if California is successful in, um, was it 25,000 new community health workers? Yes, that's right. We're essentially bringing in a lot of folks who would not have considered a career in care previously. I wonder if you could lay out some of the possible career paths they could take once they've entered healthcare. Yeah, Vaughn, it's a, it's a really important question because as I alluded to, um, you know, during the pandemic, we funded a lot of nonprofit organizations to mobilize into community, many of them using uh, community health workers. And um, these are workers that are generally very low pay folks. And so one of the things that I think we see as an opportunity is that their experience as we go through certifications and as we go through more trainings do allow them to build skills and hopefully also interest in other roles in healthcare. That might be in public health, as we mentioned previously. Uh, it might be in you know, plan administration. Uh, it might be in uh, a nursing pathway of some sort. So I think there is at least the potential to start to build on credentials and pack credentials. And I know Fiduto Health is doing a lot in this space. Um, there are a lot of technical jobs in healthcare that likewise are in need of additional workforce that we haven't talked about today. And so I think as these folks get more credentials and are able to stack some more skills, the possibilities for jobs that pay more and that also fill increasing needs that we have in healthcare, uh, we think is a very promising prospect. That's very exciting to draw on this much broader workforce to, to bring them into the future of care. 
Um, I was wondering if you could give us some uh, thoughts around uh, your work in behavioral health and, you know, how systems can do a better job of caring for the whole person. I know this is front and center on a lot of policymakers' minds. It really is. Um, CHCF did some polling pre-pandemic. We sort of try to take the pulse of what low-income folks are feeling and needing as a way to help us think about our own priorities as a foundation. We had been interested in behavioral health for some time, again, uh, largely because behavioral health, mental health, substance use disorder have been such siloed programs. We've got a behavioral health carve out in the state uh, that makes it very complicated for how we decide who has a mild condition versus who has a chronic mental health condition, who is responsible for those patients or not. And then we have just an incredible mismatch of uh, demand and need. When we pulled this pre-pandemic, uh, behavioral health was very much at the top of people's minds. Um, Post-pandemic, where we've come out of um, you know three years of social isolation and young people online being schooled and social media sort of consuming people's times because there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for any other kind of socializing, uh, that demand and that mismatch is probably more severe than it has ever been. And I think we have to approach that in a very multifaceted way. We need uh, telehealth and telemedicine capabilities that definitely works in some places. We've done some evaluation on that. Uh, we have funded a couple of innovation companies, startup companies who have this as a goal. Uh, one of whom was focused on high school students, uh, offers a bilingual capability, and they've now got a contract with LA Unified School District. So we're very excited about that. You know, one of the good things I should say, Vaughn, because I'm a bit of an optimist, one of the things that I do think the pandemic accelerated in behavioral health is a challenge that we've looked at for many, many years, and that's the stigma associated with mental illness. And I think coming off the pandemic, that stigma has sort of washed away. I think everybody talks about mental illness in a different way. It doesn't have the same taboo. And sure, in cultural communities, there may be long cultural taboos around this. But I think mental health in particular has come out as being something that is uh, important for you know, our schools, it's important for our workplace, it's important for our delivery system. Really, businesses need to think about it. It, it is a sort of a societal responsibility for us to address, uh, in particular, our behavioral health, mental health needs uh, in a much more comprehensive way. So I think that's the upside. Um, looking at how do we accelerate workforce in this space is going to continue to be a challenge. Um, but one of the other things we think is super important is to be able to cross-train workforce. So primary care physicians getting support from e-consults from folks, do you actually need to see a psychiatrist to manage these medications? Or can I, as a primary care physician, manage them with an e-consult support behind me? So really thinking again, how do we use a scarce resource as uh, effectively as possible and doing cross-training. And then it's super important that people not have to make a separate appointment to get my behavioral health needs met there and my diabetes or my hypertension or my whatever CHCF managed in a different environment, really thinking about making care much more integrated 
for people so that we look at them in their entirety. Um, and I think that's a very important part of what we need to do in care redesign as well. Well, you've given us much to think about and uh, much provocations in this this healthcare field. I wonder if we could just close out by giving you an opportunity to describe what's next for your foundation and for you. Well, I would say that you know I mentioned at the top of the of the podcast that uh, we're very interested in in the medical program, and California does have a very bold initiative, so called Cal Aim which is under a waiver from CMS. Uh, so we have you know, four or five years or so to implement these initiatives. And these initiatives are, I think, very bold, uh, very complex, and very hard to get off the ground. So a lot of effort in California, of course, on uh, care for people who are unsheltered. Uh, we have a very large population that uh, does not have stable housing. How do we provide care to them where they are, even while uh, others work on housing stock, you know, housing as medicine, but also street medicine. We're doing a tremendous amount of work right now looking at how do we provide care to people who are unsheltered in some stable, consistent, appropriate way. By the way, promotores and community health workers are often part of those teams. And Medi-Cal has a, in lieu of, so there's some opportunities to pay for things in Medi-Cal that we didn't use to, transportation, food, so-called community supports, uh, enhanced care management for the people in Medi-Cal who utilize a tremendous amount of health care, but don't get the kind of health outcomes that those exposures to the healthcare system, uh, one would think, should improve. Uh, their their care and their quality of life, and so real focus on enhanced care management. All of that is being managed through the lens of our Medi-Cal plans. And so we do a lot of work with our plans on testing some of these new provisions under CalAIM, about trying to scale them, learn from them in real time, and at the same time recognize that while there isn't an immediate uh, goal of getting everybody off the streets, we should begin to look at uh, respite care, street-based care, uh, ways to uh, reach folks, connect them, even if it's to where they are, taking services to our most uh, needy and underserved folks. Through this CalAIM program is a significant focus of CHCF, and I suspect will be uh, for the foreseeable future. I mentioned data exchange earlier, uh, Vaughn, we're gonna stay in that space. Uh, we think it's really important to achieve much better use of very uh, expensive resources. And we think there's a lot to be benefited um, from data exchange. You also probably know that there's an Office of Healthcare Affordability. So there is always gonna be a focus on, um, on healthcare affordability. If we do nothing less than reduce the rate of rise of how much healthcare consumes of our GDP, because I think everybody who works in healthcare recognizes that while expending money on healthcare is an important human right, the fact of the matter is we need to achieve health equity while we reduce the amount of burden that we spend on healthcare so that we can invest in other social programs, educational programs, housing programs. Uh, so I think CalAIM is sort of this 
interesting intersection of recognizing our historical underinvestment in social programs that then create um, these social determinants of health that have disproportionately impacted black and brown communities over many, many decades. So I think the goal would be, how do we focus on health equity? How do we take our learnings from the pandemic, apply them, really accelerate the work that uh, the state is trying to do around workforce and work with all of our other partners across the state? Because it will take a public-private partnership. Everything we envision doing largely requires a new pipeline of people to do it. Uh, we have a lot of young people in the state who've now come out of a pandemic and suddenly know what public health is and really, I think, is an opportunity for us to engage them in this uh, long-term effort that we are in. Well, I know my audience would no doubt agree when, when I say, thank goodness we have your leadership and expertise at the helm. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing every day. So important. Thank you so much, Sandra. Thank you, Vaughn. Nice talking with you. Appreciate all the work that Fortuto Health does and I look forward to talking with you again soon. I'm Vonton Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Thank you.